Hey everybody, and welcome to the first episode of Untucking the Past with me, your host, Dr. Lady J, the world's first doctor of drag. So what we're going to be doing in these podcasts is going through the history of drag specifically, and we're going to be doing a lot of larger LGBTQ history scale stuff as well as we're going through. And today's podcast to get us started off with is going to go back a way ways to the mid to late 60s, and we're going to talk about how we got to the place of lip syncing instead of live singing, why that happened, why it didn't go away, why it became what we do for the most part these days, and why that's starting to change. So what I want to do first is kind of set the scene for the 1960s in drag. So the 60s is, like with the rest of the country and the, re- and the rest of what's going on in America at the time, the 60s is a big sort of counterculture era for drag, just like it is for every other art form. So a lot of times we have this tendency to think of drag as this one thing that's happening that works kind of one way and but has a lot of variety. But in reality, drag has a lot of different purposes that are brought to bear by people with a lot of different backgrounds. So there are visual artists who do drag, there are musicians who do drag, there are podcasters who do drag, there are an endless list of performers, musicians, uh, hosts, MCs, comedians, um, any kind of entertainment that you can think of, and then lots of things that don't include just general entertainment are brought to bear on drag by those drag queens who bring their own backgrounds to the table. And so we really start to see the way this comes to bear in the 60s in terms of this big sort of shift that happens with drag. So before the 60s, the big focus in most of the drag that you'll see, if you look back, is, you know, glamour and large-scale spectacle. There's a lot of, um, in especially 50s and early 60s and late 40s drag, there's a lot of sort of exoticism. While America was in World War II, we were, you know, in Hawaii, we were in Japan, we were in all these kind of places that had these uh, traditional art forms and traditional religions that we, as far as spectacle, America took to heart in a big way in showgirl shows, in the sense of like Las Vegas um, burlesque kind of shows and strip shows. And in drag, you also see the same thing. So you see kind of a lot of Asian-inspired things, a lot of Hawaiian-inspired things, and then a lot of stuff that's sort of inspired by just opulence, glamour, and the spectacle of money or riches and wealth. And of course, mixed into that is the gender swap aspect of drag itself. So among all these queens, there are generally two kinds of performers with variations among those two, but generally people are live singers um, or they are dancers and most of the performers are live singers um, or live comedians. Now, some of them also... But it is very rare. Some of them were doing record pantomime acts, as they were called then, to comedy records. And there's some record of this in Esther Newton's book, Mother Camp, Female Impersonators in America, from 1960. Well, sorry, it was uh, published in 1972, written in the late 60s, so like 67, 68, 69. And in that book, uh, you'll find at least there's one person, I cannot remember this queen's name, but there's a drag queen who did a very successful record pantomime act, what we would call a lip sync act, 
to Phyllis Diller Records, and this was in the 60s. So obviously this is still something that was happening. And oddly enough, I have heard that, and I have no idea whether there is a longstanding tradition or or anything, because I cannot find a history of it. But I I do know after listening to icon Rip Taylor, that one of his interviews, he talks about that he got started also doing record pantomime acts to comics of the day and doing physical comedy. And that's what got him to be sort of a a big vaudeville stage kind of guy. So at the same time, uh, drag queens were having to be very, very serious about what they were doing. They were card-carrying members of the Variety Artists Guild. Uh, They had to be registered a lot of times because at this time, drag as an act outside of the entertainment world is largely illegal, even in San Francisco and New York. So you have to remember that in the 60s, there are raids still happening. This is the years we're talking about are pre-Stonewall. And even when Stonewall happens, it's not as if the raids suddenly ended everywhere in the country. Uh, Most people, I think it's very important to keep in mind that as central as Stonewall is as one of our big guiding dates, it's really, really important to remember that most gay people didn't feel any results from Stonewall immediately. No effect. Um, Laws didn't immediately change or quickly change. And so basically, you still had a lot of queens who were in these situations where you had to wear X number of articles of men's clothing. If you were in female attire, if you're wearing too many articles of female attire, you could still be taken to jail. In either case, the bar could be raided uh, by police officers. There were systems from the people inside the bars of flipping light switches and things like that to let partners know to couple up with uh, opposite sex partners when they thought the cops were coming uh, to make it seem like a uh, straight bar. And this is what happened at Stonewall, and this is what happened at bars all over this country. And so, as we'll get into in this episode, there are some really sharp class and social distinctions between live singing queens and lip syncing queens as live singing become or sorry as lip syncing becomes a normal part of the drag world so i think it's important to remember there's a reason why those queens were carrying those variety artist guild cards there's a reason why many of them cling to this concept of professionalism because that's one of the things that keeps them out of jail, and able to maintain some sort of decency and respect in the community. So, having said that, in the 60s, along come a lot of uh, young queens who don't give a crap about what anybody thinks about them as far as straight society, cops, or the like, anything of that sort. And so a lot of these queens aren't living their lives as drag queens on stage and then turning into sort of average middle-aged looking guys when they're off stage. There are people who are trans women. There are people who are who we would consider non-binary today. And of course, there are just flamboyant gay men. And this isn't to say nothing of women. It's just a matter of, uh, uh, as far as cis women and trans men, the big thing at this point is that basically drag culture centers around gay men. Trans women are a part of drag, but their role in the world of drag is sort of complex because many drag queens are, as now, trying to distance themselves from queens who are trans, trying to make it clear that they are not like these other people. So there is some fairly serious demonizing of trans people within the community that happens at this time, which, of course, I think we can all say is safely still happening today. Um, There's still many places in the drag world where trans women are not 
allowed to compete. Trans women uh, are seen as the same thing as someone like Lance Armstrong juicing in sports. I absolutely vehemently disagree with all and any of those conceptions of drag. And we're going to get into many, many, many reasons why as we go through this podcast. Because one of the things that I'm going to constantly be reiterating is there is no way to tell the history of drag without talking about trans women. That is impossible. Trans women have been here from day one. Whether or not we define them in the same language that we use now, there are people whose identities we would recognize as the same or very similar to what we have now as long as there has been drag. So if you're a trans woman and you're young and you're starting out in the drag community and people are telling you that you can't do this, screw all of that. Go do the thing because this is where your history lies. Our history as trans people lies. I uh, am still figuring out my own gender myself. So at the moment, I'm going with non-binary, but uh, I question that more and more every day. (laughs) So we'll see what the future holds. Maybe you'll all figure it out with me as I'm going through this podcast. (laughs) But needless to say, trans people have always had a space. And trans men who are listening, that includes you too, because I just got done doing a book review last year of Jillian Rogers' book, Just One of the Boys, Female to Male Cross-Dressing on the American Variety Stage. And as far as I'm concerned, there are some people in there that I think certainly appeared to live their lives the way that we would call a trans person today, or trans man today. So as far as I'm concerned, there's clearly pretty strong evidence that there's always been trans men in drag too. It's just that the history of kings is a very, very, very under-researched part of history that we need some serious, serious work on from someone with uh, a lot of time on their hands to do some digging in some archives, to follow some some leads, all kinds of things like that. So if you're out there and you're thinking about studying the history of drag kings or male impersonation or anything along those lines, and you ever would like to get started, please give me a holler and I will be more than happy to connect you with some people who could help you get started. And uh, hopefully maybe one day you could have your own podcast talking about drag king history and we could do a podcast together. So back to today's topic. So at the same time that drag is having this uh, legal clamp down um, from all these uh, police resources and raids and clothing laws and all this kind of thing, drag is not only transitioning to handle that, but drag is also transitioning from a sort of supper club slash dinner jacket middle class audience into more of the way we think of nightclubs today as we head toward the 70s and the rise of disco, which of course hadn't happened yet. Although, of course, those rumblings are also already starting to come up underground. So a lot of what I'm going to talk about today is drawn from one central source, which is Esther Newton's book, Mother Camp, Female Impersonators in America. And Esther Newton's work, I think, is maybe the most important work that has been done on drag so far, as far as trying to lay the groundwork for drag queens as human beings as early as the late 60s, which is saying a lot since at that time and homosexuality is still classified in the DSM by the American Psychiatric Association as a mental disorder. So this is still something where you can take your child to a psychiatrist and have them abused until hopefully they're heterosexual which of course doesn't work. It's very sad that we're still doing this today and 
Luckily, we're starting to work on some ways to take care of that and get rid of that in places and criminalize conversion therapy the way it should be. But I think it's very, very important, and I think it's often overlooked when we look back at drag to think about what daily life was like for the people that we're talking about. And I think it's really important to remember as we talk about this, these social and class distinctions that come up between live singing queens and lip syncing queens, that there are really hard lines being drawn in the sand for a reason. Because everyone in this game knows that the whole future is at stake. That right at this moment, just a few years later, is when the American Psychiatric Association finally agrees to take homosexuality out of the DSM, the Diagnostics Manual, for the American Psychiatric Association as a mental illness. That happens in, I, I believe it's 1973. So what we have basically when we start up, why this happens is a few reasons. First, lip sync acts are dramatically cheaper to produce than live singing acts by a large slice, no matter how you look at it. There's no band needed. There's no accompanist needed. You don't have to pay for any instrument to be in the bar, like a piano to sit there. You don't have to pay musicians to come in and play behind the queen. And you don't have to have a performer who has any singing skills at all. So the second is this: there's a rise of countercultures, including queer ones in the 60s, which led more queer people to live their lives more openly, costing them regular jobs in a lot of cases. So this is how we end up with... Basically, the lip-syncing queens are mostly people who are doing survival work. Um, some of them are hooking when they're off stage, which is not to say that the live-singing queens weren't also hooking and just a little bit more on the down-low about it, which is absolutely something that was occurring. So you have to remember, queer people who could not work day jobs because they needed to be out in some sense or another, could seek employment in the drag world and make money relatively quickly off of their skill in passing as a woman and, limp and lip syncing to some tunes. So drag becomes a survival gig for people that we might now consider trans or somewhere on the spectrum of gender nonconforming when out of drag. And so a split exists here between the older stage impersonators and the younger lip syncers who were usually what the older queens called quote-unquote street fairies or street impersonators as they're defined in Esther Newton's work. I think uh, one of the best descriptions of the differences between these two sets of people is in Esther Newton's book. And I, I do want to point out that Esther Newton is a lesbian. Um, that didn't factor into her work, and I, I don't believe she was out. I mean, it did factor into her work in the sense that it, it obviously greatly influenced who her subjects were and why she was writing about drag and queer performers. But uh, she wasn't out at the time. But you can tell that she actually understands something about the culture in a real deep way. So I want to read a couple of quotes here from the end of this chapter. Not only does avoidance of Nelly behavior, meaning uh, effeminate, flamboyant behavior, and associates enable one to avoid public identification as a deviant, the segregation of symbols into work-slash-home, public-slash-private domains has profound implications. Meaning, basically, you know, the fact that one set of these queens, the live scene queens, set themselves up as, my work is being a drag queen, that is a job that I do, it is my profession, it is not who I am. And the street fairies or street impersonators who say, I am a drag queen, and I live the life of a drag queen, and many of these people are also uh, transgender. 
The essence of the stage, going back to the quote, the essence of the stage impersonator solution to the stigma involved in female impersonation is the limitation of drag, the symbol of feminine identification and homosexuality to the stage context. For if drag is work or a profession, a man might take some pride in doing it well. If it is work, it is not home, it is not where a man lives in the deepest sense. If it is work, a man could always quit. In contrast, the street impersonator's way of life defies the established institutions and quote-unquote normal people. The street life is by definition anti-establishment. The street queen who becomes respectable will no longer be a street queen. I was not surprised to see that, and she says that because as these street queens and street impersonators move towards live singing or uh, live comedy or dancing, um, they are often not referred to as street impersonators anymore, even if they are still very much the same people. The street life is by definition anti-establishment. The street queen who becomes respectable will no longer be a street queen. I was not surprised to see that the first collective homosexual revolt in history, the quote-unquote Battle of the Stonewall, and I should also uh, step aside from the quote and say that it is not the first collective homosexual revolt in history. It's just the one that Americans talk about the most. It's not even the first one here, which is in no way to deny its empower, its power or relevance or importance. It's just to say that there are other things that happen and there are other people that, that, have, that did this work at the time. Quote, I was not surprised to see that the first collective homosexual revolt in history, the quote-unquote Battle of the Stonewall, named after a gay bar in Greenwich Village, New York, where gay people fought the police for several nights after the police attempted to close the bar, was instigated by street fairies. Street fairies have nothing to lose. And I think that's sort of a really, really important place, uh, or a really, really important uh, note that I want to hit in this podcast is that yes, some of these street fairies and street impersonators might not have been the best performer you've ever seen, but that is also true of the live singers at the time and the live comedians. It's like any entertainment business. In every art circle, there are people who do well and who are seen as very professional, who are not seen as very good by other artists. It goes for any music circle, any art circle, any drag circle, any anything. But it's important to note that despite whatever differences in quality might have existed between these uh, sets of queens, the biggest difference really is this way of being and living in the world. It's that the the live performing queens were very much, this is a business, this is my job, this is not who I am, even though I am a homosexual I may not live as a homosexual when I'm out in public. I don't want people to know. I don't want to be one of the ones who is seen every day, who people recognize. And again, I really think it's important, even though I am kind of putting a negative tint to that, to also remember that like the stakes were totally different than they are today. The stakes were totally different. No one, if you are sitting where I am sitting in Cleveland, Ohio, or in most places in America today, you are not going to, if someone at your job finds out that you're gay, not just lose your job, but maybe lose your apartment, maybe lose your house uh, that you're renting, maybe go to jail, maybe have your name published in the paper as a homosexual after you've been in jail, maybe have pictures of your license plate uh, taken and published in newspapers. That's happened. All of those things were very real occurrences and very regular occurrences in the 1960s. So what these young queens that were willing to live on the street and live closer to the bars, usually living a lot of times collectively, two to three of these queens uh, in an apartment, they 
were willing to take an enormous risk with who they were. But part of that is also because they did not come up through a system like these queens who have variety artist guild cards and all these kind of things that allowed them to gain these same assets, that allowed them to come through these same doors. A lot of these queens who worked this the the old system basically knew how to work it. It was a it was one of many things as we you know the way we talk about showbiz. This was kind of small time show business was what drag was at the time. So in many ways, you could pass as just a professional entertainer, and people would probably know that you were gay, but they wouldn't recognize you outside of your drag. They would have no idea who you were. So you could very easily live as two totally separate people, even if you were quite a a successful drag queen. So yes, there were these huge class and social differences. There were these differences in skill level. But realistically, the main reason why lip syncing took hold is because of how absurdly cheap it was in comparison to, you know, creating a full act on stage with musicians and other performers. In this way, you cut down an enormous cost at a time that bars and nightclubs really needed to cut down on costs because before the 70s, nightlife was not doing as well, especially the middle class dinner jacket kind of places that a lot of the drag queens were performing at. There was the rise of of the counterculture and rock and roll and politics with young people and a young people's culture that was essentially brand new in the age of rock and roll and had only been around for 20 years or so tops at this point. So you have this all these sort of different things that it's having to respond to in addition to handling these changes in the way that queer people are living their lives, that gay people are that trans people, gay people, uh, lesbians, bisexuals, queer people, all over the spectrum were living their lives more openly and were in many cases no longer willing to deal with living in the closet, living as somebody else, living in a different way. And a lot of trans people, Christine Jorgensen had just been a news article for many of them when they were children. And so she was a person who people knew about in in society. Uh, For those who don't know, Christine Jorgensen was probably the most famous person who uh, who underwent transition in the public eye. And she was in many ways seen as a marvel of the atomic age and uh, in many ways seen very positively rather than the negative depiction that you might think of, even if it was sort of a positive freak on a box sort of image. So... You have all these different kinds of changes coalescing. You have all this monetary differences. And what ultimately results is a totally different nightlife scene. So lip syncing takes over. And with the rise of disco in the 70s and the rise of every club having a dance floor and changing its entire way of existing, instead of rock bands playing and dance bands playing, they're going to play you know, whatever current pop tunes are happening, you end up with a DJ for the first time. You end up with mixes in the 70s. So everything starts to change with what you can do with a lip sync. You can combine songs together. You can do lots of things that used to, you couldn't. And that becomes more accessible into the 80s and into the 90s. And by the 90s, we are at a place where we're able to have someone like like Lipsinka, who takes that whole concept to a whole other territory, creating a fully-fledged, you know, off-Broadway show that's all interspliced lip-sync to movie quotes and stuff from old albums and all kinds of different things. And then everything in between. Plus, you have a generation that comes up with music videos. We were raised with music videos and, and this very visual culture of cable television comes up. And so that's something that really helps drag and lip sync to become sort of 
more postmodern as the ages go by. So to sum up today's episode, basically the reason why we started lip syncing was because it was cheap. There was a change in queer culture where people were ready to jump themselves onto a stage and live their lives more openly. And because of that, lip syncing was introduced as more than just a sort of novelty aspect of some comedy pantomime bits that some queens were doing and eventually took over, uh, especially as the days of disco came. But I do want to say, as I probably will be reiterating a lot through this podcast, that this is just one narrative of many that are happening at the same time at any time we're going to talk about most of these things. So at the same time this change is happening, this is also the same time that Divine and John Waters are starting to make movies. This is the same time that Sylvester is starting to form his own band before going out on his own and becoming a huge star in disco. This is the time when the Warhol factory and the trans women and drag queens that were involved with that uh, was this was around the same time as that starting to coalesce. So there's a lot of different things going on. And I always want to iterate that there are usually sort of at least two worlds of drag once the 60s come along. And I'm going to do uh, definitely another episode on the, the 60s and drag. But there's there's always two cultures. It's like right now there are a lot of queens who would tell you that glamour is the most valuable thing in drag or female impersonation or makeup knowledge or any number of things like that that have to do with sort of the female illusion aspect of drag. Then there are other queens who would tell you that what's happening in the underground is most important. That things like Dragula and Camp Wanakiki and things that are coming up from the bottom that involve strange and unusual and funny and weird drag that might not always be the most polished and perfect with the perfect selection of makeup palettry and all of this, that that is the main thing that's happening right now. And that's always going to be true. And we're going to get into so, 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 so much more of all of this as we go forward. So I just want to thank everybody for listening today, letting me prattle on for the last half hour or so about drag and lip syncing and this change in the 60s. And I can't wait to do a ton more episodes for you all. And if you want to keep up with everything that's happening with Untucking the Past... Uh, check out www.theonlyladyj, that's just the letter J, dot com. And there you can uh, check out the podcast and what's happening with that on the podcast page, untuckingthepast at gmail.com. And I am not sure how soon the next episode will be out because, frankly, doing this by myself is kind of hard. Um, so I'm hoping to have another one done in a month, but... It might take a little longer, hopefully a little sooner. I will keep all of you posted. Um, I'm going to start working on a Patreon soon, so I'll keep everybody posted about that. And, of course, you can always follow me at in, on Instagram and Facebook at TheOnlyLadyJ. And, again, that's just the letter J at the end. And thank you all so much for listening to the first episode of Untucking the Past with me, Dr. Lady J. And I don't have a sign-off today, uh, but maybe this will become it. I have no idea. But... Keep it weird, keep it queer, and I'll see y'all next time. Bye!